Hello, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news and social justice issues. Stick Together is produced in the studios of 3CR Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. This edition of Stick Together looks at the firestorm created by the Liberals and their helpmate, the Murdoch Press, over the issue of the CFA, EBA, the CFA being the Country Fire Authority. We will then look at the latest employment figures from the ABS, that's the Australian Bureau of Statistics, followed by a chat with Robin Murphy about the feature she's involved in about the heroic fight for equal rights at work for women, lest we forget. But first, some union news. The court case against Cathy Jackson, former Secretary of the Health Services Union, the HSU, and star witness for the coalition at the Royal Commission into Union Corruption, has come down with its verdict over the missing $1.4 million. A federal court decision last week concluded that Jackson had been for many years systematically stealing from the HSU. After her grand performance as a whistleblower, it is now understood that despite Jackson having declared herself bankrupt before the case started, so the HSU can probably kiss the money goodbye, there is now no doubt that it is safe to say Jackson has been proved to be a thief, a liar and a hypocrite. Hobart Hospital redevelopment has been halted because of asbestos. All asbestos should be identified and removed from the Royal Hobart Hospital before redevelopment work proceeds, according to Tasmanian branches of the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Energy Union and the Communications, Electrical and Plumbing Union. The CFMEU Safety Officer Kevin Harkins says that we're suggesting as construction proceeds, the first thing that needs to happen is a full audit of the asbestos on the construction floors and then a full removal. Nothing short of that will provide a proper level of protection for workers. The National Union of Students has called a National Day of Action across the country on August 24th. They are calling for the end of $100,000 degrees, which will cripple students well into their working lives and make higher learning only available to the wealthy and overseas students, in fact, to pre-Whitlam days. It is the 10th week of the CUB dispute where management sacked the entire maintenance crew of electricians and fitters and turners and offered their jobs back at 65% less pay. The guys picketing CUB outside the CUB plant in Abbotsford, Melbourne, were joined by a special guest last week. He's big, he's bad, he's mean and he's ugly. And that's very appropriate when you deal with a company like CUB. Probably a CUB rat. (laughs) A scabby rat. His name's Scabby. Scabby the rat. And he first come about in 1990 in Chicago when the Bricklayers Union had a dispute. The prick of a boss, very similar to CUB, took him to court and said, not only do you have to keep walking, but you can't have your placards. So the union and the workers back then said, well, if we can't have our placards, we need something that represents the culture of the company they were dealing with. 
and they came up with this young gentleman in front of us, Scabby the Rat. Um, how do you do? This is Dan Andrews, uh, and um, I am honoured and very proud to be the Premier of the wonderful state of Victoria. Does that fire extinguisher work? Well, you check it, won't you, because we don't want any accidents. Because I'm talking. I'm just going to talk into the microphone. I've got an important message, but I don't want to fire. Is that... I don't want... No. Put the matches away. Just test the thing. Uh, Dan Andrews here. Uh, I'm thinking of making subscription to 3CR compulsory. I'm talking to the unions. Um, and uh, we should have a result by Friday. But um, I think you, as a broader community, should prepare yourselves to pay for this radio station. It's an absolute cracker, apparently. I must have a listen. You're on Stick Together, produced at 3CR Melbourne and broadcast on the community radio network. You were just listening to a skit by John Clark, who came into 3CR and, with his finger on the pulse, honed in on fire, the CFA and politics as a topical issue to raise a laugh. The Liberal Party can also smell a winner. That winner is the accusation that the Andrews government in Victoria is enthralled to the UFU, the United Firefighters Union, and is about to destroy the CFA's code of volunteerism. Why is it a winner? Well, you know, like in Gallipoli and the volunteer force sent to die in World War I, it lives in the realm of mythic heroism in Australia. Tie that with the country notion that the city folk are always undermining them with red tape and you have a Liberal Party beat-up campaign to order. Even before the federal election, which returned the coalition with only one vote, the Liberals knew their industrial relations agenda of reduced wages, increased casualisation and no penalty rates were affecting their standing in the electorate. But out of the mist... Matthew Guy, the Victorian opposition leader, known as the Minister for Developers in the one-term Napthime government, sensed it was a winner to bring up the CFA-EBA before the federal election when the Liberal Party created hands-off the CFA campaign and got some traction in some marginal country seats. Now Guy is joined by Liberal Party feds who want to share the sun of the winning tactic. First off, this week, Federal Workplace Minister Michaela Cash did an opinion piece in the local Victorian Murdoch rag, The Herald Sun, decrying the attack on the faultless nature of the CFA volunteer force. Green's Federal MP for Melbourne, Adam Bant, was so appalled by the misleading, if not untrue, statements in Michaela's piece, he called for her resignation. Let's press on with the drama of this week's gleaned from the CFA feast. In comes Turnbull, PM, the man of the people, to a meeting with CFA volunteers at Coldstream, where he's quoted as saying he is shocked and horrified by the CFA battle and that CFA volunteers are the very essence of the Australian spirit. You get the picture? What do they want out of this? Well, the Liberals see this as a way of corralling the unruly Senate to vote in favour of some of their industrial relations agenda, as Turnbull is quoted as saying, who is going to stand up in the federal parliament and say that they do not support the volunteers of the CFA? What were they doing in Coldstream besides glad-handling the locals? 
Michaela Cash and Malcolm Turnbull were unveiling legislative amendments to the Fair Work Act, which will attempt to neutralise the proposed CFA-EBA. The Respect of Emergency Services Volunteers Bill was revealed at Coldstream Fire Station. So once again, the coalition think Australians can be blinded by jingoism. Their cynicism is breathtaking. If you look more carefully at the facts on the ground, a different story emerges. We spoke to Peter Marshall, the Victorian branch secretary of the UFU, for his take on the political storm. Well, essentially, uh, the firefighters' uh, enterprise agreement claims have actually been um, uh, have been captured by the Liberal Party uh, for political purposes, uh, who have sought to not only misrepresent but tell blatant lies in relation to what is actually in the uh, uh, in the in the certified agreement. Oh, they say it's a takeover. Uh, they say that uh, you know you can't commence. Volunteers can't commence firefighting operations until seven firefighters, paid firefighters, are on the are at the fire scene. I mean, that's a lie. Even the minister's uh, uh, opinion piece, uh, Minister Cash's opinion piece in the uh, Herald Sun today, uh, is a blatant untruth. Uh, and we note that the uh, federal member, uh, the uh, uh, spokesperson for industrial relations for the uh, federal Greens, Adam Banters actually uh, called for um, a resignation on the basis of propagating an untruth. But can I say, this has actually been very damaging to firefighters. It's actually uh, fractured the relationship between career and volunteer firefighters. It's been used by the Liberal Party to actually raise money uh, by creating a website uh, called Hands Off the CFA, asking people to uh, email in their concerns uh, in support for the CFA. Back of that website, there was a uh, direct link into Liberal Party headquarters, whereas there was a, a request for uh, a donation to support the CFA. It was no more than a fundraiser for the uh, Liberal Party during the federal election, uh, again uh, propagated on the basis of an untruth. How can we get the people of Victoria who, in the background of all this, we had savage fires and we have had savage fires in the past, that really require people to be working together. Can we really afford this to be a political football? No, it just shows how irresponsible the uh, Prime Minister, Mr Turnbull, is, as well as the uh, uh, Federal Minister. I mean, um, they are just totally irresponsible. Uh, They have vandalised the fire services here in Victoria for the sake of their own political gain. Uh, And I can tell you very clearly that uh, their damage that they've done is... uh, not only irresponsible, but uh, goes to the very heart of uh, the uh, community uh, uh, community ethic of firefighters. Uh, they've sought to vilify professional firefighters in the press, uh, predominantly through the Herald Sun. There's been around 25 full page, uh, sorry, front page articles from the Herald Sun, again propagating untruths. Uh, this is probably one of the saddest and darkest periods in the firefighting history. Uh, which is a very proud service uh, that uh, we've uh, that uh, that we've seen in Victoria. What do uh, firefighters, uh, professional firefighters, need to get this on the road again? They need the community to make their politicians responsible. I mean, uh, you know, Mr. Turnbull and uh, Minister Cash are just totally irresponsible. They are propagating legislation based on a lie. 
uh, and these need to be brought to account. Again, this is a, a form of work choices uh, under another guise. They're trying to use this issue to facilitate industrial reform. Uh, and as I said, uh, you know, uh, while um, uh, it's tragic at the same time this is occurring, there's not been one effort by Mr Turnbull or indeed uh, Minister Cash to address the thousands of firefighters that were uh, poisoned at Fistful uh, as a result of the uh, uh, employer exposing them to uh, uh, toxins and uh, poison and then covering it up. I mean, where's, where was Mr Turnbull's concern there? Where's, where, is, uh, where is Minister Cash's uh, advocacy for uh, uh, those uh, people being compensated or alternatively getting proper treatment? You haven't heard one word out of these uh, people. And I've got to tell you, they take politics to an all-time low. Yeah, so that was for the CFA too, wasn't it? Like uh, for at the oh, moment, just CFA it was MFB and CFA people, uh, both volunteer and career firefighters that uh, that were actually um, poisoned at Thistle. Yeah, right. So, can you tell me what are the major issues for you as uh, professional firefighters? What do you need? Uh, what conditions are they attacking? Oh, they're attacking um, safe systems of work. I mean, the increase in firefighting numbers are there to ensure that if a firefighter gets uh, uh, in trouble uh, uh, at a normal house fire, for example, it's 1,400 degrees Celsius. Uh, if, um, if, a, um, uh, uh, if a roof comes down or uh, alternatively a firefighter gets trapped uh, or alternatively collapses uh, during uh, performing firefighting, uh, firefighting activities or performing a rescue, uh, the reality is, because uh, of the current system in the CFA, there's no one there to rescue the firefighter. Uh, the increase in staff that's been put in by the Andrews government is to not only protect the firefighters, but to protect the community. So those safety systems of work are vitally important, as is consultation, because uh, if you don't have very stringent consultation processes, uh, we've had experiences where uniforms have been bought on the cheap. Yep, that there'll be seven at thirty-one fire stations out of thirty-four. Yeah. they're called integrated stations. That means there's a combination of volunteer and career firefighters there. Out of thirty-one of those thirty-four stations, uh, there'll be a requirement for the dispatch of seven uh, career firefighters to an incident or fire call. That is that is to ensure that there will be critical safety backup to the first crew that's responded. Now that does not prevent uh, volunteers from responding to the fire. If the volunteer truck gets there first, they'll commence firefighting uh, operations. Uh, the incident controller, if that's a volunteer, well, he'll be in control. He or she will be in control. So uh, everything that's been propagated by uh, Mr Turnbull uh, and Minister Cash is nothing more than a blatant lie. Well, I mean, it'll be to the community's detriment if uh, they do uh, able to pass this legislation under the, uh, under the premise of uh, what is uh, uh, basically a lie. The Australian Bureau of Statistics employment figures came out last week showing a marked increase in the part-time workforce. I spoke to Professor Bill Mitchell from Newcastle University for an analysis of the figures. Yeah, well, the latest figures from the ABS uh, on employment in Australia have just come out. What's your reflections on those? Well, I mean, my overall reflection is that Australia is becoming a uh, part-time employment nation. Um, when you think that about 86% of the jobs created in Australia this in the last 12 months have been part-time, and uh, within that, 
um, an increasing underemployment, so that is part-time workers who desire more work but there's not enough hours available, uh, and also within that the collapse of full-time work, uh, which is you know stable, secure, well-paid jobs in favour of increasingly casualised, unstable, low-paid jobs. I think that uh, yesterday's figures just confirm a relatively dismal trend that's been apparent for some years now. There's also been uh, figures showing that there's an incredible increase in the amount of unpaid uh, labour. Do you think that that goes to, you know, the increase in part-timeism is covering over the fact that there's a whole lot of unpaid labour? Well, we've seen a trend for some years now, even even about a decade and a half of uh, uh, pressure being put on workers to work longer hours, but only being paid standard hours. And um, we don't necessarily have data that can pin down that uh, the part-time workers are being forced to work more hours. But the overall trend in the labour market is that, yeah, that... Uh, uh, increasingly workers are being pressured by both peer group pressure but also management pressure to to stay at work, work longer hours, uh, forego family and leisure and not be paid for it. And, uh, and it's all part of the same story of, uh, of uh, increased, uh, a shift in the bargaining power towards capital, if you like, towards employers and away from uh, workers, and uh, the dimensions of that are this increased casualisation, lower uh, the flat wages. I mean, we've had incredibly... The last three months, we've had the lowest wage rises recorded by the ABS on on record. And um, so these are all parts of the same story. We've really subjugated what, what I would call society, which is people and families and in the natural environment and uh, our our non-work lives. We've really subjugated that for uh, by elevating the so-called economy to being something independent of us, but uh, that we, we're sort of servile to. And uh, we've almost created the economy as a deity rather than the economy being something that we create and work it works for us. We work for it now, and uh, uh, it, it's quite clear that uh, uh, our, the quality of our lives is declining as we we pursue that trend. If we uh, look at that sort of idea, uh, it's been suggested to me that uh, you have theories around uh, employment guarantees. Uh, people would um, be amazed at the notion that you could have full employment, for example, or that actually the economy works for us. Um, I described, when someone said that to me, that uh, about the idea of employment guarantee, that actually what you're really talking about is when a uh, capitalist system is actually tottering and you need to actually maintain society, you would create an employment guarantee. But it's possible, isn't it? Well, it's possible and I would probably uh, somewhat disagree with your your slant. I mean, clearly, 
really in the period after the Second World War, up until about the late 1970s, we had very low unemployment in most Western countries, all Western countries. Uh, in Australia, we very rarely saw unemployment rise above 2%. <clears throat> and during that period, we had virtually no underemployment, that is, part-time workers wanting more, more hours. And the reason we did that was not because the private sector was creating a lot of jobs. It was, but not sufficient. It wasn't because the normal public sector was creating the jobs that made sure we had very low unemployment. Anybody who wanted a job could get one. The reason we had that was because within the public sector, there was a what I call a buffer stock capacity. And uh, this was spread across a range of areas, including the railways, the, trans the transport system in general, local governments, the big uh, infrastructure departments like housing and roads. And effectively, anybody who wanted a job could get one, no matter how skilled they were, or unskilled, if you like. When you say that, are you saying any man could get a job? Well, the, the, the gender issue is interesting, but um, the, the period we're talking about, the labour market participation was biased towards men, that's clear, yes. So that's, that's the point. Any, any male could get a job. Uh, and remember that the participation of females during that period was very, was was very low compared to what it is now. So we, I, I wouldn't want to put a gender construction on it, uh, because that just reflected the, the the societal norm, if you like, of the era. But the principle is that that the public sector had the capacity on any day to make sure anybody who wanted a job had one. And unemployment was very short term. It was, uh, you know, the definition of long term unemployment in, in that period was 12 weeks. Now it's one year. And so the principle is that the public sector has always had the capacity to generate sufficient employment if it has the political will to do so. Now you might want to construct it in the way you did at the beginning as the, as a sort of band aid palliative for a failed capitalist system and I'm I'm not unhappy with that construction I'm I'm uh, uh, to totally comfortable with the idea that we should prop up capitalism for the time being uh, if it enhances the lives of those who are really bearing the brunt of the the unemployment and the the sort of the the, the erroneous policy structures I so really what you're saying is that if there was political will and we didn't uh, uh, slavishly follow neoliberal uh, concepts, that you could actually have full employment? Well, yeah, we've, we've done a lot of research. We've surveyed all the local governments in Australia, well, 140 of them anyway, and uh, asked them uh, how many jobs and what sort of jobs they could create to serve environmental care and community need which are not being, if, if they were funded by the federal government, and, you know, we've got hundreds of thousands of jobs that could be created that would actually actually help society, which it would help the natural environment and would provide stable employment uh, at low wages but at a decent living wage for anyone who wanted it. And uh, it's, it, the thing to understand is that 
it's the federal government that chooses the unemployment rate. This idea that the market chooses it or the trade unions cause it is is false. It's the it's the government that ultimately, through its political decisions, chooses the unemployment rate because it can always employ anybody that's unemployed. You're with Annie McLaughlin on Stick Together, Union News and Workers' Stories. In 1973, famously, a bunch of Port Kembla women chained themselves to the gates of BHP demanding work. Robin Murphy tells me this was an event that even she had forgotten by 1981 when she became part of the Jobs for Women campaign. For Robin, this is an example of why women's fighting history needs to be recorded. Robin is part of the Jobs for Women's producer group, which is in the process of making a feature film of the historic fight for women's right to work, which took 14 and a half years to win in the Australian Federal Court. Anyway, let's go back and remember what it was like in those days and why the fight was so important. Robin Murphy. You have to remember that up until about 1974, there was the family wage. Basically, you are looking at women's wage was 75% of of male wage. You had the nuclear family. The father went off to bring home the bacon. The mum was at home homemaking and the kiddies were going off to school. That's right. During that period, and I remember that time when I I tried to get um, just things like renting a house. You had to have a signatory, a male guarantor, if you wanted a loan. You, you could not get a loan as a woman. You had to have a male backup. And in the federal public service, once you got married, you could no longer work full time. So there are some massive things that were happening at the time for women that have completely changed today. The ramifications of the, the 1980-94 campaign were fantastic because you know, industries could not just pick and choose between men and women and divide men and women the way they had up until then. And it also changed the Shops and Factories Act, which was another discriminatory legislation that said women could not lift more than 35 pounds. I mean, BHP at the time said, oh, we'd love to employ women, but we've got this legislation that we really have to comply with. Well, 35 pounds is equal to, you know, a two-year-old on your hip or a couple of bags of, you know, shopping. And as a result of the legal campaign and the work that the Equal Opportunity Councillor did at the time, they actually brought in a, a researcher who, an independent researcher who went through and looked at what was £35 and what wasn't and then highlighted just how unsafe that legislation was for men because they had no way of lifting anything safely. So what came into being was the... Um, OH&S. OH&S manual handling. Now, if you want to know more about uh, Robin Murphy's project, then go to Jobs for Women website. If you want to know more about what's going on with the CUB 55, just key in CUB 55 and you'll get to their Facebook and their Twitter. Thanks to Peter Marshall, Bill Mitchell and Robin Murphy for talking to us today. My name's Annie McLaughlin. Catch you next time. 